0: You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. It is good to see everybody here this morning. I want to thank Elvin for bringing that message, and it worked out really well in spite of the, uh, the concern. I, I do appreciate it. And I also, uh, he probably doesn't want me to say this, but I appreciate Elvin spending all the time that he spent to make sure this parking lot's plowed. So we have a place to park here at the church. Thank you for doing that as well. Please turn to John chapter 13. So how many of you like fireworks? Fireworks? I like fireworks, you know, and and firecrackers are okay, but uh, I like I like fountains, and I like the spinning, spark emitting fireworks even better. I especially like the kind that change color as they burn. And my favorite fireworks are the aerials, you know, the ones that shoot way up in the air and explode into the brilliant globe of colored spark trails, you know, like like these, right? Yeah, aren't those pretty? Okay? Or, or these. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, or even these. Yeah, yeah. Why does it do that to us, right? We see that and it's just like, oh, that's, that, we like that. Aren't those pretty? Now, have you ever wondered, how did they get all those different colors? Now, maybe all of you know this, or at least maybe many of you know this. But if there's anybody here that doesn't know this, the color of the sparks... From the firework is determined by the chemicals that are packed inside it. When the firework explodes, it sets the chemicals on fire and different chemicals burn with different colored flames. Like this. Now, what those are, and you see those here, the, uh, the SR for strontium and barium and lithium and sodium and copper and calcium, all different elements from the periodic table. And they all burn with different colors. You take... I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, In fact, the the colors produced by the burning of pure elements are so distinctive that those colors can be used to identify the elements involved if you don't know what they are. And I'm not just talking about fireworks now. I'm talking about like this. You can take each uh, kind of element that's listed here, and if you take a small small sample and burn it in the flame, it will produce a unique color. When I took chemistry... About 36 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things we had to do was we had to take the sample of an unknown element and identify it. And we looked at all the characteristics, but the color of the flame that the element produced when it was burned was often the characteristic that told us for sure what the element was. Now, what really makes... One element different from another is its atomic structure. What really makes one element different from another, specifically, is how many protons are in the nucleus. But the problem with using that to identify an element is that you can't see the protons in the nucleus. They're there, and that makes it what it is. But you can't see it, and so it's great to say barium has 56 protons in its nucleus. But that doesn't help much if you can't, you know, if you need to identify. A chemical, an unknown chemical, you need something that you can see. And and knowing that it has that many protons uh, doesn't do you much good because you can't count them. What's the next question, right? Why am I telling you all this? Well, so the question might come up, so what makes someone a Christian? You might say, well faith in Christ, coupled with repentance and confession of that faith. Baptism, these are the things that make a person a Christian. You might say that having the Holy Spirit living within you is what makes you a Christian. And I think all those things are true. But unless I was there to hear your confession of faith, or unless I was there to see your baptism, all of those things are things that by themselves I can't see in you. Now, you may be quick to point out that there are indeed visible signs of whether a person has faith or whether the Holy Spirit lives in someone, and I would agree with that. In fact, that is the central point of John chapter 13, in which Jesus gives us a defining characteristic for all those who would be called his followers. In this chapter, we see how that defining characteristic is a reflection of Jesus' own character. And we will look at one way Jesus taught the expression of this characteristic to his disciple, as well as what one alternative to this characteristic might look like. Today's message is called, By This All Men Will Know. We're in John chapter 13. Let's start with verse 1. Now, before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper... And laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. I just want you to take a thought, just focus on verse 1 for a minute. This, the, the main event of John chapter 13, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, is not recorded in the other Gospels. But before John writes about that event, he gives us the context for it. And that context is the theme of the chapter. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is often held up as an example of service, or as an example of humility, and it is both of those things. But in verse 1, John characterizes this humble act of Jesus with a different word. And that word is love. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that he would be crucified and that he would be buried in the tomb and that he would rise from the dead. And he knew that he would then ascend back into heaven. With those things in mind, because he loved his disciples and he wanted to give them an example of love, humility, and service that they would always remember, he did this thing. We've got the graphic there with the sandals and the the basin and the towel. Love is the theme of this chapter. And love is the defining characteristic of Jesus' followers. And you'll see that, I hope, as being central to this entire thing. In verse 2, John introduces a a, a second key element to this account. The contrast that exists between Jesus and Judas Iscariot... Clear back in John 6, 70, Jesus described Judas as a devil. And twice in this chapter, John connects Judas to Satan. In chapter 12, John related that Judas was a thief, pilfering from the money box of the disciples. And now Judas' greed has motivated him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In sharp contrast to this selfish person, Jesus selflessly humbles himself in service and love to the disciples. Now, in those days, if a person invited guests to a meal, the polite thing to do was to have the lowliest slave, I mean, whoever you know got the least amount of privileges of anybody, maybe a Gentile slave, or maybe even a woman slave, female slave. It was a polite thing to do to have this slave wash the feet of the guests, which, you know, for us doesn't maybe sound like such a great big deal, but for them at that time, it was an extremely distasteful task, considering that people back then walked almost everywhere, that their, foot, uh, their footwear left much of the foot exposed, and they shared the streets and roads with various sorts of livestock. It would be a little bit like walking barefoot through the barnyard and then showing up for dinner. At that point, regular dirt is the least of your concerns, right? Here in the upper room, there is no servant designated to wash the guest's feet. Jesus takes that lowly servant's role upon himself. Yeah, nobody asked him to do that. He just did it. Yeah, that's part of the example, right? Now, the custom of the time was to recline. The table was a low table. And they would recline around the table, propped up on one elbow. And then the the legs and the feet would be angled away from the table. And so people would be inserted in angle-wise that way, you know, one next to another. And we'll see that come into play a little bit later in this account. But this would have left the feet of the disciples out there away from the table, accessible for Jesus to wash. It was a dirty, disgusting job. And Jesus did not have to do it. But Jesus loved his disciples, and he wanted to show them what love looked like. Now, Peter, Peter objected to Jesus washing his feet, probably thinking that Jesus shouldn't be washing any of the disciples' feet. I think Peter, I don't know, as I, as, I, as I see Peter, the way I understand him, he looks at himself as having to out-disciple the rest of them. Does that make sense? Okay, Peter, you know, he's got, it's like a competition. I've got to be a, you know, the super disciple compared to the rest of them. And so even if the other disciples didn't say anything, Peter was determined to you know, hold that higher standard in, in comparison to the rest of them. Of course, when P- Jesus informs Peter that unless he washes Peter's feet, Peter would have no part in him at all, Peter immediately goes to the opposite extreme. Well, don't stop there, Lord. You know, my head, my hands, uh, you know, everything. Peter needed to learn and, and still going to take you a while to figure this out. He needed to learn that Jesus never needed correcting. Okay? You don't have to say, not so fast, Jesus. I think it ought to be this. No, you never have to say that. Peter's role, as our role is, was to accept Jesus' direction and obey it, whatever it might be. Now, I don't know if you ever noticed this or not. Did you notice something else here in Peter's objection? Maybe something that's missing? No, I'm struck by what Peter didn't say. Peter didn't say, Lord, this is all backwards. I should be washing your feet instead of you washing mine. You know, even John the Baptist got that right. And it has to do with feet. Back when Jesus first appears and John was talking about, John the Baptist was talking about Jesus coming, he said, one is coming, and I'm not even worthy to loosen the thong on his sandal. Which would be, you know, the whole same foot thing. Peter, Peter missed that. That wasn't what Jesus wanted right now, at this point, either, for Peter to wash his feet. He didn't want that. But I think that might have been a better objection than what Peter brought up. Anyway, just a thought. Now, 11 of Jesus' 12 closest disciples here were his sincere followers. Their association with Jesus and their faith in him as Messiah and as the Son of God has made them spiritually clean. Not their own doing, but because Jesus is there with them and they have that relationship. Jesus wasn't washing their feet to grant them some new spiritual purity. He was showing them love. He was giving them an example. Again, though, Judas is mentioned in contrast, this time to the other disciples. And clearly his heart was not in the right place. Let's go to verse 12. Speaking about Jesus. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Sometimes we ask the question, what would Jesus do? Here it's the question of what did Jesus do, right? Jesus asked a great question question of his disciples. He says, do you know what I have done to you? Well, the obvious answer is... Yeah, you, know, you washed our feet. And while that would be technically correct, it isn't at all the point of what Jesus did. And I think this is the point. Jesus, what are some other names that we have or descriptions that we have of Jesus? Especially, you know, we talk about Christmas time, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Or King of Kings, or Lord of Lords, and, and we know from the scripture that Jesus is the creator of the universe. That is who humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. He could have said, Hey guys, I, I want to teach you something, so pair off and wash each other's feet. Right? That sounds like, uh, sounds like modern small group exercise. Right? something we might do. Instead, Jesus did it himself to show his disciples that their expressions of love for each other are not to be limited to those things which are convenient and dignified. Sometimes we get wrapped up in that. Oh, I don't really think I should be doing that. Really? Why not? Does it need done? Is it an expression of love? Is it going to benefit the person, bless them? And Is God going to be honored? Well, then why shouldn't you be doing that? If Jesus can do something as menial and detestable as washing feet to demonstrate love for others, is there anything so lowly that we can't do it for each other? Some churches practice ritual foot washing based on this passage. And I'm not going to say that's wrong, though it can certainly be a, a bit difficult logistically Certain clothing choices just don't lend themselves to this, okay? But I don't really think that's the point of Jesus' instruction. This, this is not so much about literal foot washing as it is about being eager to show love for our brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever way we can, no matter what that might be, without regard for, wait a minute, but I'm too good to do No, you're not. And neither am I. Neither am I. See, this means we need to know our place. Think about some of the discussions the disciples had with each other. If you go back and you read Matthew chapter 20, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 22, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, you see some of the times that the disciples were concerned with who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Well, they should have known the answer to that right away. Who's the greatest in Jesus' kingdom? Jesus is the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, right? Just like the slave is not greater than his master, Jesus' disciples are not greater than he is. So what would make any of us think that we are exempt from these kinds of acts of service when Jesus himself set the example for us? Instead, we need to recognize how blessed we are when we follow Jesus' example. First off, And I'm just speaking from personal experience here, okay? But first off, I'm blessed when I serve in this way because I know it pleases Jesus. And I really want to please Jesus, okay? I really do. That's what happens when you love somebody like that. You want to please them. Second, if I really love you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, like I'm supposed to, we'll talk about that in the last section of the passage here, if I really love you like I'm supposed to, then I'll be blessed when I exercise any opportunity to serve you. And maybe especially when it's something of a lowly nature reminding me, hey, you can do this. And nobody has to know, and nobody needs, you know, it doesn't have to be, whatever. Just, I'm blessed when I'm able to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the third thing, when I'm focused on the needs of others... And this is a great thing, okay? When I'm focused on the needs of others, I will escape the misery that comes from being focused on myself. And you will too. We are really are blessed when we understand and put into practice what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. Go on to verse 18. Jesus, speaking about them being clean, clean, um, Let's see here. Let me just go back for a second. He says, uh, Jesus speaking about them, following his example, being blessed when they do these things. Verse 18, he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter Gestured to him and said to him, "Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking." He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Jesus then answered, "That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him." So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it, he took and gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, "What you do." do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, all the disciples knew of the plot by the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus, but I'm sure they never dreamed At least 11 of them didn't. They never dreamed that one of their own group would be involved in that plot. Jesus quotes from Psalm 41.9, saying that his betrayal by one close to him was a fulfillment of that scripture. I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him even before Jesus selected him to be his disciple. There was no surprise here for Jesus. He knew Before he picked him, still the disciples are troubled by this announcement, as you would expect, and as you also would expect, the conversation quickly turns to one question: Who? I mean, you can't just say that Jesus without telling us who. I mean, you know, don't keep us in suspense. Who? Which one of us sitting here could possibly betray Jesus to the authorities? Now, the one who's mentioned here as the disciple whom Jesus loved—that's one of John's designations. We believe for himself. And that would make sense. You have Jesus there reclined at the table. And then John, you know, if, if Jesus is leaning on his left elbow, then John would be right here. Jesus' head, John's head, and possibly Judas right here. The, the picture you see of the Last Supper, you know, the, the great painting. Got a big table and it's got them all spread out. Not like that. Anyway, so. Peter asked John, perhaps Peter the next one after John. Peter asked John to ask Jesus who it is. And John asks. And Matthew and Mark both record that the disciples were not just asking who would betray Jesus. They were saying, surely not I, Lord. The English Standard Version records them as asking Jesus, is it I? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the confusion and the, the concern, the there's a word, and I'm not coming up with it, but man, I mean, how that would make you feel at that point. Jesus is just now, one of you is going to betray me, and you're wondering, could it be? And you, you, you might ask the question, well, how could they not know? How could they not know if they were going to betray Jesus or not? Well, I'm sure they all knew at that moment whether they were planning to betray Jesus. And at that moment, only Judas knew who and what Jesus was talking about. And you'd you'd think that would have made Judas reconsider right there. He knows. He knows exactly what I'm thinking about doing, what I'm about to do. It, It didn't, or at least we don't have it recorded, and it didn't change his mind, certainly. The rest of the disciples had to wonder if somehow they were going to betray Jesus, even though at that particular moment they never intended to do so. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus does tell us, or tell, you know, when he does say who it is, It doesn't seem that Jesus announced this to the entire group, that it was going to be Judas. John may have heard what Jesus said, and may not have passed it along to the others right then. We don't know. They all heard Jesus tell Judas to do what he was going to do, and do it quickly, but they didn't know what Jesus was referring to. The next thing they knew, Judas had gotten up and left. John says that after Jesus handed Judas the morsel of food, Satan entered Judas' heart. And that might sound like some sort of overriding control. Well, Judas wouldn't really have done this on his own. Satan somehow managed to overpower him and and take control and make him do it when he didn't really want to. No, that's, that's not it. And that's not how Satan works. Satan entered his heart because Judas let him. Satan entered his heart because that's where Judas was going anyway. So this statement does not absolve Judas of the choice that he made to betray Jesus. In fact, it underscores his responsibility. Judas had one last opportunity to repent and to confess that he was going to betray Jesus, but then to say, but I just can't do it. Instead, with Jesus looking right at him, I think, handing him the morsel, Judas made the choice to go through with his betrayal. And I think there's another thought here that's just more than a little ironic. Judas walked out of the upper room on his way to betray Jesus, Satan filling his heart on feet that Jesus himself had washed just a few moments before as an expression of love. As Judas stepped into that first patch of mud or manure, do you suppose that he thought about the way Jesus had completely humbled himself and showed his love for Judas. We know that later, after he betrayed Jesus, Judas did experience remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver that was the price of betrayal. But instead of repenting and turning again to Jesus, Judas went out and hanged himself. Sad, sad story. Very somber Especially considering the time of year that we find ourselves in. Go on to verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus consistently refers to his impending crucifixion as his being glorified. Not the way we tend to look at that, but that's the way he looked at it. Last week we mentioned that he died so we could live. So that when we are made alive in Christ, because of his death on the cross, he is glorified. He is also glorified in his death because he fulfills the will of God the Father. He said that over and over. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Jesus went to the cross. What does that mean? The Father told him to go to the cross. We're approaching Christmas here, but we are reminded again that Jesus' birth was a prelude to the real reason He came to earth. He came to die. and He's glorified in His death because He fulfills His purpose in coming to earth. And John, I appreciated your communion meditation as well. Thank you. In verse 34, Jesus says He's giving the disciples a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. The command to love one another. And you might look at that and say, well, how is that a new commandment? Didn't Leviticus 19.18 already specify that they were to love their neighbors as themselves? And in Matthew 22.39, didn't Jesus himself already say that loving your neighbor as yourself was the second greatest commandment? Yes and yes. So, how is this command by Jesus to love one another new or even different? I think it's different in at least three ways. There's probably more, but you know me. Anyway, at least three ways. First of all, loving your neighbor, like Leviticus 19:18 um, talks about, loving your neighbor as yourself is a one-way event. You see that? It's a one-way event. Your neighbor may or may not reciprocate, and it doesn't matter. You don't have to have the expectation that he will. In fact, you shouldn't have the expectation that he will. It's not that kind of of, uh, relationship. In this new commandment, though, that Jesus gave, as Christians, we are to love one another. What do you see about that? Right? Right? That means the love is going in both directions. And if I am a Christian and you are my brother or sister in Christ, I have every reason to expect reciprocity. I love you. And I expect you to love me. Like Jesus said to do here. And you have the right to expect that as well. The second way this new command is different is that it is aimed at people who mutually claim faith in Christ and who are His followers. There is a shared relationship that strengthens that bond and therefore strengthens that love. In fact, the love that we have for each other as Christians is supposed to be even uh, uh, deeper and more multifaceted than just the love that we are to have for our neighbor. Okay, And the... As the parable of the Good Samaritan illustrated, the love shown to a neighbor is often shown in spite of their being. No common relationship. And the third way this new command is different is in the standard used as the basis of love. What did it say? Leviticus 19.18. It said, love your neighbor how? As you love yourself. Right? Loving your neighbor as yourself uses you as the standard. In whatever manner you love yourself, love others the same way. But Jesus raises the bar with this new commandment by saying, Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, I'm not the standard anymore. Now, Jesus is the standard of the love we are to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when Jesus said that, I don't think he was referring just to the love that he expressed when he washed the disciples' feet, though that was certainly part of it. I think he referred also to all the ways he had loved his disciples throughout his ministry up to this point, And perhaps especially to the love he was about to express for them in his crucifixion. And I know I'm spending a lot of time on this one point, but that's because this is the pivotal point of the chapter. Perhaps even of Jesus' entire teaching about what it means to be his disciple. Verse 35 is the verse from which I took the title of today's message. It contains what Jack Cottrell calls the distinguishing mark of the church family. What is it? That we love one another like Jesus loves us. Another commentator calls it the hallmark of the Christian community. As Christians, when we love one another the way Christ loves each one of us, then all people will know that we are true followers of Jesus. And that raises a question we probably don't want raised. So what happens when we Christians don't love one another the way Christ loves us? What does the world do? Conclude about our discipleship. Then, for some reason, human beings are not naturally drawn to something that we call delayed gratification. Right? In the food realm, we have instant oatmeal, minute rice, and microwave popcorn. One comedian said, "I, I put, uh, how do you say that? I put minute rice into the." Microwave and went back in time, something like that. Anyway, in communications, we have cell phones we can take almost anywhere. So we can call, text, or email almost anyone, almost any time. And in the financial realm, and uh, if you want to tie this message into Christmas, here's the place to do it. In the financial realm, we have bank loans, credit cards, store credit, and overnight shipping so we can purchase almost anything we want and have it right now or tomorrow at the latest. One person wryly observed that American consumerism consists of people buying things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Okay. Now, why couldn't Jesus' disciples go where he was going Well, two reasons. First, he was going to the cross to die for the sins of mankind. Only Jesus could do that. Even if the disciples had been crucified with Jesus on that day, it would not have meant the same thing. And second, even though Jesus rose from the dead three days after the crucifixion, he ascended into heaven 40 days after the crucifixion, and the disciples stood there and watched him go. They couldn't go with him. Jesus will continue this dialogue with them in chapter 14. The chapter ends here. Chapter 13 ends with Jesus' response to another rash statement that Peter makes. Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know that's true. Just not yet. Okay? That's true. Just not now. Peter seems to understand that Jesus is going to die, but he doesn't understand his own weakness. It's good that he's willing to die with Jesus, but Jesus correctly informs Peter that Peter will deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And that's only a few hours away. I'm sure Peter thought that such a thing would never happen. And we'll see the fulfillment of Jesus' words here when we get clear on into chapter 18. Now there's a question that has been quoted so often by so many different people in so many different ways that it has become cliche, even trite, okay? But I'm going to quote it again because in light of John chapter 13, it is a question that needs to be asked. You may be way ahead of me here, but here it is. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You've heard that before. But I don't know if you've heard that and thought about it in conjunction with what Jesus was teaching here. As far as this chapter is concerned, the answer to that question depends on two things. The first one is obvious. You have to actually already be a follower of Jesus or else you're not going to have the accusation made in the first place. The second thing, though, again, relative to John chapter 13, is, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ the same way Christ loves you? Because if you do... That kind of love will be visible. People will know that you are a true follower of Jesus. Meaning that, yes, there would be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian. And if you don't know whether there would be enough evidence to convict you, ask your fellow Christians. See what they say. If they don't know either, or if they say no, then... You ought to seriously assess the way you love other Christians and assess the why you love other Christians and assess how you're showing that you love other Christians. And as far as why goes, as Christians, do we love one another because we believe that it will somehow benefit us? Or do we love one another because we feel obligated, perhaps even doing so resentfully at times? Or do we love one another because it proclaims to the world, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Do Do we love one another because we love Jesus and because Jesus first loved us? I hope so. The love that you have for other Christians is the way that everyone else knows you really are one. When we started the message today, I talked about the way you can identify an element by the color of the flame it produces when it burns. The message today has been all about being able to identify Christians by the kind of love that we have for each other. But what if you're not a Christian yet? Where does that leave you? Well, for now, anyway, it leaves you with a different color of flame, so to speak. You can't have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ because you don't have any brothers and sisters in Christ, at least not yet. But you do know now what is the distinguishing mark of the church family. And you'll know what kind of love Jesus had for his own disciples as well as what kind of love you will need to have for other Christians if you do choose to follow Christ, and I hope you do. Here's the hard part, depending on how you look at it. I know that there isn't a Christian in this church building, or in any other church building, or in the entire world, or in any time. There's not a Christian anywhere who has perfectly demonstrated this kind of love 100% of the time in his or her Christian life. I know that. You know that too. And so if you want to look at Christians and point out ways that they haven't loved each other as Christ loved them, you'll always be able to find some example of that deficiency. It's there. If that's what you want, if you want a reason to say oh no, but see that person didn't in this instance and right there, they haven't done this and so I don't have to. If you want to find that and try to use it as an excuse it's out there. But I urge you to be honest if you're if you know people here at all. I urge you to be honest and to look around even this relatively small group and ask yourself, can I really tell that some or many of these people love Jesus so much that they love other Christians the way Jesus loves them? I guarantee you that the answer is yes. You can tell. And again, I would say that many of the people here are true followers of Jesus by the way that they love each other. And that's a testimony, and that's supposed to make a difference in your life. If you have seen the love of Christ put on display in the lives of Christians here, then know that you can have that kind of love and receive that kind of love in that relationship as well, if you enter into it. And that, of course, is in addition to the salvation, the forgiveness of sin, and the eternal life that Jesus promises when you become his true follower. And so if you have decided to follow Jesus today, then please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.